The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Go ahead and turn your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. While you're turning there, I'm not singing this, okay? I'm not going to sing it. That would be bad on you. But I will recite these words. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and the wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in that tree, and he said what? He said, Zacchaeus... You come down from going to your house today. At least some version of that is most likely the thing that we may have sang as a child. I know my children love that one, and I have even caught them in their room. They've got bunk beds, and on one time, one of them was in the tree, up top bunk, and they were trying to get it to come down. And so I know that that can be the way things play out. I selected and decided... Uh, to go ahead and talk about this today, this very familiar account of Zacchaeus and his meeting with Jesus, really because it is so familiar to us. I think when we deal with familiar text or familiar things in the Bible, that can either uh, go for us one of two ways. On the one hand, and hopefully it's the way it'll go today, you'll look at that and say, well, I know something about that. I'd like to know more about that. Or I've studied that before and I love to continue to study that because there's so much you can dig out. And that may be how it goes. But I've also heard the old saying, and I have definitely been a victim of such at times, and that is that familiarity can breed contempt. And what that means is sometimes things that are most familiar to us, we tend to look at them and say, okay, I already know about that. I've already studied that. That's old news. Uh, Move on to something more important. Move on to something that matters. And I've been guilty of that in in times past. I've even been in my daily Bible reading, and I hope that you've got some sort of a system just to spend time with God every day. But in just passing in daily Bible reading sometimes, I'll get to a text or a context, and if I'm not careful, I say, well, I already know about that, and I want to turn the page. That's a bad idea because God has constructed and allowed us to have His Word in such a way that I have at least learned, uh, for lack of a better term, sometimes the hard way, that if you'll keep digging, you'll keep finding. There's always much more treasure there. So I don't think today that I'm going to reveal any brand new, um, never seen treasures here uh, for you, but at the same time, there may be just a thing or two that we recognize together, at least some application of this text, Luke 19, uh, that may be a different, uh, different perspective from what you have seen before. Because when I sat down and was examining this different times throughout the week, I realized in myself at least that there is a sense in which I have lost, and I said I have lost to an extent my thrill for seeing Jesus. Uh, I think about it and I see that there are times in my life when I've been really thrilled or excited or we might even have used the term, at least my children would, I'm pumped up about the Lord and I want to know more about Him. I want to be able to spend time with Him through His Word and such, and there are other times when it gets just too too familiar and we just kind of fall flat at least i'm guilty of that and just kind of step back sometimes and and don't spend the time with god that i should or don't allow him to excite me uh, like he has in the past and that doesn't need to be the case not on a regular basis really not even on any basis we ought to continue to come back to god and come back to his word 
uh, knowing that we'll gain something from it. So I have kind of, sort of, entitled the context here of Luke 19 verses 1 through 10, uh, that of the thrill of seeing Jesus, the thrill of seeing Jesus. Because we've got a man right here in Zacchaeus, that wee little man, uh, who was certainly thrilled to see him. And even more so in the end of the account than he was in the beginning. I don't think in the beginning of the account he had nearly the grasp, nearly the understanding or comprehension of who Jesus really was. And we'll try to bear that out as we go through. But I want to show you a few things. We'll get through three, maybe four of these, maybe even not that many, but show you a few things about the text. And I want to remind you how this text is kind of uh, set up, how it begins. And it doesn't really begin specifically in chapter 19 and verse 1. It really begins even better for understanding and comprehension's sake, at least back over in chapter 18 and about verse 31. And specifically, if you read down to verse 35, you start to learn something about Jesus, and that is Jesus was headed into at least at that point, headed into or in the direction of ultimately Jerusalem, but at the time, most locally, Jericho. And as he's coming toward Jericho, he gets just outside of the city. This is Luke 18, beginning in verse 35, it says, And it came to pass that he was come nigh unto Jericho, or near to, and a certain blind man sat by the wayside, and hearing the multitude pass by. Now, I've got that phrase kind of underlined in my Bible, hearing the multitude, that's the key word, hearing the multitude pass by, ask what it meant. Now, what does this blind man lack? He lacks the ability to see. And so unlike the next character we are interviewing, which is Zacchaeus, he lacks the ability to see. And so what he wants to do is he wants to hear. And the reason he wants to hear is because he has heard already the multitude passing by. Keep up the reading there in verse number 37, chapter 18. And they had told him that Jesus of Nazareth passeth by. And he cried, saying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And he which went before rebuked him, which should have hold his peace, and cried so much more that the Son of David had mercy on him. So we've got a guy here who cannot see, he can definitely hear, and he wants to be heard. Even though they're trying to suppress him, even though they're trying to discourage him, even though the, the multitude of people really are basically telling him, just you just hush your mouth, you don't bother him, it's only Jesus, you don't need him, he's nothing he can do for you, even though that seems to be what is currently going on, he doesn't listen. And you keep up the reading even farther in that. Verse number 40, And Jesus stood and commanded them and brought unto him the one and the man which was come near and asked, saying, What wilt thou that I shall do to thee? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said, Receive thy sight. Thy faith has saved thee. And immediately he received his sight. Verse 43, And followed him. Watch the next phrase here glorifying God and all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. Why read that? Why back up that far? Because at least that far, and I mean by that the previous chapter, chapter 18, the book of Luke, and verse 35 beginning, everyone there was making noise about Jesus. Everyone there to an extent had either become excited or had been excited and were continuing to be excited about seeing Jesus. 
And so the fact that Zacchaeus, chapter 19 and verse 1, enters into the picture, and that he is at least curious as to who this was, is not a shock. It's not a shock. And that's before we even begin to make uh, real technical points about the context. Chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, the first point outside of that is basically this, and that is, would the world be curious as to how I react to Jesus? Would the world wonder? Maybe better stated, does the world wonder about how I'm reacting to Jesus? Am I making enough noise about my Lord that the world would say, you know, what is the deal? What's all the stir about? What, what's all the excitement about? What's all, why are you different than the people around you? That's important. And I think it's important every day. I think it's particularly important in the day in which we're living when there are a lot of people right now, we've been having to fortunately say this for about the last year and a half, almost two years. There are a lot of people right now that are hurting, that are struggling, that are downtrodden, that are broken, that are depressed, and you could add all sorts of words to that, that are struggling right now. And they need to see a distinctive difference between the way we're reacting to our situations and more importantly, the way that we're reacting to the Lord. And to be able to see within us in the way that we live, our lives that we live, whom we trust. And that's kind of where this lays itself out. Let's just read the whole entire account here, chapter 19, verse 10, and we'll start making those specific applications concerning uh, Zacchaeus' at least will and thrill to see Jesus. And Jesus entered in and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little in stature. And he ran before and climbed in the sycamore tree to see him, and to pass by that way. Verse 5, And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste, come down, for today I must abide in thine house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully, and when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that this was, that he, I should say Jesus, was gone again to be a guest in the, in the house, of, uh, to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Lord, behold, uh, Lord, and half of my goods I will give to the poor, and all that I have taken from any, one, from any man by false accusation I will restore to him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day salvation has come to this house, insomuch it was also the son of Abraham. And the son of man, this is the key verse of the text, verse 10, by the way, for the son of man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. So why was Jesus there? Was Jesus there because he happenstance traveled from one place, Capernaum, into Jericho and ultimately was headed toward Jerusalem and just by happenstance and by circumstance he just so happened to pass into this city or that? I don't believe it for a moment. He came there that day and that time and all times 
to seek and save that which was lost. Now let's notice a few things. Number one, when you consider this of Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus' desire, his thrill to see him, number one, his desire in seeing him was based on the focus of that desire. All Zacchaeus seemingly knew about him, at least according to what the text says, it says in verse 3, the beginning part of it at least, and he, that's Zacchaeus, sought to see Jesus, quote, who he was. That's interesting. Because I think the majority of times when Jesus passed in from one city or to another to another, probably for the majority of people, when they wanted to see Jesus, they wanted to see Jesus out of what I might call mere curiosity. Now, I think there's a level of that here, certainly. There's a level of that. But their curiosity may have been based on, for example, the miracles that he performed. You go back and you read John's accounts. Of course, we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all these gospel accounts. You go back and read John's accounts particularly, and John lays out the entirety of his book and sets it up based upon about, depending on how you count that out, about seven major miracles that he does during the course of that book to prove ultimately, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, that he was the Son of God. That's his purpose in his book. And many of the people who followed after Jesus, or at least came into the presence of Jesus, many times, and Jesus had to make this direct accusation toward them, they were there, quote, because of the miracles which he did. And I only say that because many of those people, I'm as guilty as some, have come to Jesus or come to see Jesus because they wanted to see just basically what he had done. You know, what is he doing? In the preceding verses of chapter 18 that we read across to get down to this point, he had just healed a blind man. He had just healed a blind man, and the noise of that, the, the stir that was caused about that was great. And so Zacchaeus could have easily been said of him that he came to see Jesus and what he had done. And he was coming to see Jesus and what he would do. But that's not what the Scriptures say. The scriptures say that Zacchaeus came here to see Jesus on that day because he wanted to see who he was. Who he was. Now in Jesus' day and time, Jesus had already become, for lack of better terms, a well-known, a popular uh, character of the day. There's very few people probably, at least in this area of the time of writing, who didn't or weren't aware that Jesus was that of Jesus of Nazareth, that he was Jesus, the carpenter's son, that he was Jesus, uh, that that was given birth to of Mary, born of a virgin. So whether they understood it or not, they were aware of it. There were many in that day already, just based on the, what has happened in the text up through these first 18 chapters, who were aware of his miracles. They had heard his words. They had seen his wonders. They knew his will. But Zacchaeus comes here. And he comes here and he's willing to seek him because he wants to see his desires fulfilled. He wants to see him for who he was. Now notice something else about this. There's not only the desire of seeking him in the second place, there's a dedication it took to seek him. That's what our children are most aware of. And he sought, I'm in verse 3 again, and he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and he could not for the press because he was of little stature. And he ran before him and climbed up in a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass by that way. 
And so you think about that and you think about what his dedication required. Number one, it required effort. Him being little in stature, which in Jesus' day, and this is strictly estimation, this is more based on history, uh, not Bible, albeit Bible always backs up history. But more based on history than Bible, the average person in and around the era of Palestine, in and around that day, and very much similar today, the average person measured about five foot tall. Now, there may be a couple of you who are five foot tall, but the majority of us in this room, we're taller than that. And so what we might call a wee little man or what we might call that small man or that of little statue might be of different, of different judgments, depending on how tall we are. My son, the other day, he and another uh, boy or two at school were discussing back and forth who was the tallest, this and that. Of course, he ran home immediately and said, can you measure me? I mean, he's 6'5". He's 15. He's 6'5". Got a ways to go. I'm a wee little man <laughs> compared to that. In Jesus' day, though, the average height supposedly, historically, was about five foot tall. So we've got Zacchaeus here who is smaller than that. Smaller than that to the extent or to the point, I don't know what that would have been, but seemingly smaller than five foot tall to the point that it was notable. That that was something that was seen of him. And he comes here, according to the record, again, this is all just familiar stuff, he comes here, he ran, he climbed up into the sycamore tree to see the Lord. Now in Jesus' day, and particularly around Jericho, they were known for several different types of trees, particularly for their sycamores. Now their sycamore, my understanding at least from what I was able to dig up, their sycamores are not exactly like ours. Uh, they are much larger trees as far as their breadth, as far as their width. I'm told that the limbs would have probably been more along the lines of our oaks. And so very sturdy, very stout trees, but easy to climb. One description I found of it basically said, you take our crepe myrtle and put it on steroids. It's about what we're talking about. But nonetheless, it takes effort. He could have easily, like many would do today, he could have easily ran up and said, well, look at the crowd, look at, look at all that's going on. I'm not going to get over there to it. Nothing I can do about it. No, no way around it. I just, I'm not going to be able to see him today. But it took effort. It took effort for him to come and to climb that tree. In addition to that, it also took escape. He had to escape from those crowds. He had to find a way up in that tree and he had to find a way to discover who Jesus was. And that's just a little bit about his dedication. Now, in the middle of that, I want you to notice his difficulties. We've got his desire. He wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to see who he was. We've got, in that case, his, de his dedication. He was willing to climb a tree to do it, but we've also got his difficulties. Look at verse 3, the latter part again. And he sought to see Jesus, but he could not for the first one here, for the press. Now, in the times in which we live, if you wanted to go and see someone who was well-known, or, again, not trying to apply the term directly to Jesus, but for understanding who was popular or even famous, what might stand in your way? The press. The literal press. I mean, the cameras, the flashing lights, the, the reporters standing back. Not the same here. The press here obviously describing the crowd. 
the throngs of people that had gathered, it goes back, and I've got an arrow. I wish the arrow could point better, but it, it points basically back from this page over to this page to verse 36, and hearing the multitude passing by. The crowds are huge. We do know that multitudes in Jesus' day, we know at least the types of crowds we're talking about. In John chapter 6, in that record, Jesus comes before what is called, quote, a multitude, and he determines to feed them. That's the account of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, those 5,000 that are numbered in John's account are numbering only the men. So mathematically, making a huge assumption here, we could associate perhaps a man with a wife, and then maybe a man and a woman with at least two children, maybe more in that time and day. But you could easily get upwards of 20,000 or more. So I don't know what kind of multitude this was, but this multitude, we know something about them. One, they're large. Two, they're loud. And they come into the midst of this place, and Zacchaeus is curious enough about that that he is willing to go toward that crowd. So here's what I notice about that. That crowd within itself is a difficulty. It's a problem. Verse 3 said, it was because of the crowds or the press, he wasn't able to get to Jesus. Let's illustrate that. How many people in this world right now would easily get to Jesus if it weren't for the crowd? Now, we're supposing something. We're making assumptions about the heart that we necessarily cannot make, or at least I am. I won't throw you in that. But how many people in this world today would get to Jesus, perhaps even easily, if it weren't for the crowds? If it weren't for the effect of this world on them? Whether that's pride, whether that's selfishness, whether that's general worldliness, whether that's, and you could name off another 25 whether that's. How many people would arrive at the feet of our Lord or maybe be willing to climb a tree to see Him if it weren't for the crowds? If it weren't for those around us, this world around us that stands in our way. What does John, and I'm talking not about the Gospel of John, but what does John, as in 1 John, say concerning that type of thing? Here's what it says. 1 John 2, verse 15, beginning. Love not the, what's the next word? The world. That's the crowds. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man would love the world, he has what is available to him. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's three crowds itself. That's three separate crowds. That's three separate mindsets, our groups, attitudes that stand in the way of us and God. All of us, not just them, us. And how many times have I seen in my life where I've gotten caught up in the crowd? Christian or not? Disciple of our Lord or not? Where I've gotten in point, a place where I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm looking Unto Jesus, that's what the Hebrews writer talks about, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And I've looked unto Jesus, but just ever so slowly, 
And you can do, I, well, you ain't got to do this. We'll all look weird. But when I do that right there, I lose sight of your faces. The blur, the crowds. First thing that stands in his way that was in that sense a difficulty was the crowds. Number two, it also was his condition. Verse three, the latter part of it says he was little of stature. He was just a little fella. Uh, whatever again, don't know that size specifically, wouldn't suggest specifically, estimated I just mentioned, but he himself stood in the way. And that's not necessarily anything to do with physical stature. It was here for the illustration of it, but that doesn't have to do with that. When I center myself around myself and in myself and on myself and through myself, I can easily stand in myself's way. And I can be the block. I can be the barrier. This stands between me and God. Because again, things like pride and worldliness and, and self-centeredness and, and all those things listed stand between us. And so the question arises, what is the difficulty? Number next, and we're going to drop down for this. Look at verse 7. Let's read it again. And when they saw it, they murmured, saying that he was gone to be a guest in the man that is a sinner. Who's that? We've got the crowds potentially standing in his way. We've got in that sense his own condition that stands in the way, but we've got the critics, the, those who make accusation. Now, you, you don't have to go very far, and I'm, we won't take time to read it because we don't have the time, but I'm in Luke 19. That's right here. That is on for me. It is page 94 of my New Testament. Don't know where yours is. But if you go back to chapter 18 and chapter 17 and chapter 16... And if you go back, you'll find time and time and time again, not just in Luke's account, but in all the gospel accounts, where there were critics. The critics stood in the way. And again, you could just assume and make an make illustration of that, at least I am, to ask the question, how many people would easily come to Jesus today if it were not for the critics? If it were not for those who looked and said, what, what, what is with you? You're getting soft. Uh, why don't you, I mean, you used to hang out with us and you used to do this and say that and live this way and you're no fun anymore. And, and, and what, what's wrong with you? You think you're holier than I am now? You think you're better than I am now? Or, or, or look at us and say, well, specifically as the church, you know, do you, are you suddenly think you're the only one going to heaven? The critics. The people who make accusation. Several different texts. Matthew chapter 5, verses 7 through 10 uh, are illustrative of such. I should say not 7 through 10, 7 through 12 are illustrative of such. Other texts very quickly Yea, and all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. The critics. Critics should not stand in our way. So what about the desire of seeing him? He was willing to climb. What, what in that case about the dedication of seeing him? Well, he was willing to put forth effort and willing to escape the crowd to do it. What about his difficulties? They were numerous. But, look at verse 5. 
Picking up the reading again. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up, I've underlined this, he looked up and saw him, that's one, and also said to him, so that's two, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste, come down, for today I must abide at that house. So two things start playing out right here, and this is what I'm calling the delight of seeing him. Once he finally gets up in the tree, once he sees him, it's not just the fact that Zacchaeus saw Jesus, it's more the fact that Jesus saw Zacchaeus. Yeah, visually, in the storyline, in the account, in the illustration, visually, Zacchaeus has now brought himself up high enough. He can see beyond the crowds. He can see beyond his own condition. He can see beyond the critics. And he can see strictly Jesus right there, I suppose, by that point, near about right under him. But Jesus comes into his presence, and the first thing it said about him, we just read there, verse 5, is that Jesus saw him. Why did Jesus see him? Did Jesus see him again? I would, I'm just making an assumption here. My opinion doesn't have to be yours. Did Jesus see him by happenstance? Did he see him by chance? Did, did he see him by, you know, he just stumbled upon, maybe, you know, maybe Jesus stumped his toe and he bent over to grab his toe and when he raised up his, you know, his eyes... Here, you can write this in your margin. This will help you remember. I'll spell it. B-O-L-O-G-N-A. Baloney. Jesus is here because he's providentially been led. Jesus is here because it's the will of God, verse 10, that he is going to seek and save that which is lost. We've got a man here listed in verse 1 and 2, it says, that he, Zacchaeus, was, verse 2, the latter part of it, which was the chief among the publicans. We've got a man who is hated. In the preceding chapter, we have a publican listed. A publican is standing, verse 13, chapter 18, and the publican standing and far off would not even lift up as much as his eyes to heaven and smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. We've got a Pharisee and a publican preceding chapter, chapter 18, and the illustration of that is that the Pharisee is not looking for Jesus, and in one sense, Jesus is not looking for him. But the publican, the hated, the despised, he certainly is. And here we got Zacchaeus chapter 19 listed as the chief among the publican. We would refer to that as the tax collectors. And here it is that Zacchaeus is seeking after him, but most importantly, Jesus is seeking him. Number one, this was personal. When Jesus looks to Zacchaeus and when Jesus locks eyes, verse 5, on him, he calls him by name. He doesn't say, hey, fella, uh, hey, man, 2021 or 22, hey, bro. He says, Zacchaeus. He calls him by name. 
And according to Scripture, and I've got some references down we won't go over to, but according to Scripture, more times or every time, when the Lord made reference to these individuals, He called them by name. What did He tell Nathaniel? This is just one of those examples. What did He tell Nathaniel? He comes up to Nathaniel and says, Nathaniel, I saw thee under the tree. I saw you over there. He knew him by name. This for him is personal. And he saw two things. Number one, he saw where he was currently. He's in a tree. He's literally out on a limb, as we would say. He's literally in a position where he's in danger, where he is exposed to everything, where he could be a target of anything, and he sees him in a tree. But this is what blows my mind. He didn't just see him in a tree. He saw him under a tree. You say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. He sees him at the foot of his own cross. He sees Zacchaeus in that tree, but he sees him in some point in time in the future under the tree of Calvary. He sees him there in need of the blood that he would shed. He sees him in the group, verse 10, of those that were lost. And this is personal. This is not only personal, we read on in the text a little bit more, we'll have to move quickly, but he not only saw him personally, he saw him powerfully. Look at it, verse 7 beginning, And when they saw it, I'm sorry, verse 6, And when he made haste, he came down to receive him joyfully. And when they saw it, all murmured, saying that he was gone to be a guest in the house of a sinner. That's powerful. Verse 8, And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore to him fourfold. Verse 9, And Jesus said unto him, This is the day, this day is salvation come to thy house, for as much as also the son of Abraham. It was powerful. Zacchaeus did three things here. Number one, he revealed. The text doesn't reflect it as much in the English as it does in this original language, which would be the Greek, which I'm no expert in, my disclaimer. But verse 8, it said, And Zacchaeus, key word, stood and said. Zacchaeus is, I've oftentimes pictured him, at least as a child, I pictured that, that intimate scene that maybe we were, misrepresenting and that is Zacchaeus sees Jesus or hears of Jesus he can't see him he climbs up in the tree Jesus comes by casually looks up and says hey Zacchaeus come down I'm going to your house today come on and, and then Zacchaeus shimmies down the tree and they go into Jesus' house and they sit down for a private, intimate meal and, and, and to spend time together. And obviously there's some teaching that goes on and some discussion, that, all that to be assumed. But I've always pictured this as just, you know, Zacchaeus is there in the house and he breaks down and maybe breaks down in tears and he says, Jesus, you know, I, I, I'd give half I could I have to the poor right now. And if I've stole anything, I'll give it back. And maybe Jesus commends him and says, well, that's a good idea. When you get back to work on Monday, that's what you need. 
I don't believe for a moment that's the way it's panned out. It says he stood. We also know that there were those out around that, and I read across it in verse 7, they saw it. And they, how many murmured? All murmured, saying that he was gone to be a guest in the house of a sinner. And I think every witness to those who saw them go toward that house, saw them in that house, and at some point Zacchaeus stood before that house. And he, in that case, expressed. He also exemplified repentance, verse 8. He also experienced restoration, verse 9. And Jesus said unto him, This day salvation has come to this house. You know, I've looked at this a number of times and, and noticed some of the words, but two things that stand out. Number one is verse 5, the last two words, or four words, abide at thy house. Again, my assumption is Jesus is going to go by for a cup of coffee and a donut. The word abide there that's used by God, inspired to be written by Luke, the word abide there implies that Jesus is going to make his house in the house of Zacchaeus. You say, you saying Jesus moved in? I'm not saying that physically. But Jesus came to move in spiritually. And he stayed. His body got up and left. He wandered back out in the sand, but he stayed. And he stood. And he said, this day salvation has come to this house. That is profound. You know, in this case, yes, it was personal, Zacchaeus. Yes, it was powerful for Zacchaeus. But it is profound to us because we all in some point represent that of Zacchaeus. The question comes up for me is am I, am I, am I looking? Am I seeking? Am I desiring? Am I thrilled to, to you know, most of us in this room, we're blessed. We're blessed beyond measure. We're blessed spiritually. We've already Received into our house that of Jesus. We've already taken into our hearts that of Jesus. We've already through obedience, through belief, repentance, pray, confession and prayer, we, uh, or confession and, and baptism, we've already put on Christ. We've already allowed ourselves to do what Christ required. Zacchaeus is meeting with that that day. And he shows himself to be willing to do whatever it takes. If you're here this morning, you're not a child of God's invitation is always open. It was open before we got here. It'll be open when we leave. But the invitation is always the same. It's to see Jesus. To see Jesus means literally to experience Him. It means more than to experience Him like some of the world would think about it. It's not a mysterious thing. It's just a matter of doing what He said to gain what He has. It's obedience. So obeying God from the root of our heart the very foundation of His. The invitation is open this morning. If you have a need, you're invited to come while we stand and sing this invitation song.